This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 30. This is Writing Excuses, Project In-Depth, The Calculating Stars. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm wondering what evil plague you have in your lungs over there, Brandon. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of these have, uh, have aired yet, but I haven't been on any of the NASA episodes yet. You can tell why. Um, I've been on book tour for a week and also caught a head cold. He and was so, sick, so we had to quarantine him from the mission so yes, the rest of yes. us could carry it out. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm stepping in for this one because we're going to talk about Mary's book, and we have a special guest star, uh, Jell Lindgren. Say hi to the audience. Hello, audience, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Welcome back. Thank you. So I am, I am especially excited about this specific project in depth because it, it has two unique circumstances for your listeners. Um, so first of all, this is a reminder that in the project in depth, we go full on spoilers. The Calculating Stars is not a heavy book to be spoiled, but if you are one of those people who don't want to know anything ahead of time, read the book first, come back and listen. Uh, but the reason I'm excited about it is that we are doing this as an interesting point in process. Um, I have not yet finished. Uh, my, my editor has done all of the structural stuff on it, uh, but we haven't done the line edits, which means that I'm actually going to be able to incorporate any changes that come up uh. during this conversation. Um, and because this book is set during Mercury and Apollo era uh, space, and it's you know involving my Lady Astronaut universe, and we have an actual astronaut here, um, this is also an opportunity for you to kind of hear sort of what it's like when you have uh, a sensitivity reader or a, uh, a specific uh, expert in to talk about a book. This is kind of what this process is like, although obviously usually it's not done in a podcast format. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, um, let's address, at least for me, what the elephant in the room is for this. This is a story, a novel based on a novella that you wrote. Why did you decide to do it um, how did you approach it, like, just that concept? What's going on here? Okay. So um, so what started with this, uh, for most people, most people first became aware of this through The Lady Astronaut of Mars, which is not actually the first book in this series, uh, in this universe that I, I wrote. I call this my punch card punk universe. Um, and And the first story I wrote in this was from a writing prompt uh, and it, it's called We Interrupt This Broadcast, and it was about slamming a meteor into the Chesapeake Bay um, a, in the 1950s. Um, and that one was, that idea I had was, it would be really cool if there was a um, a mad scientist and, and things went slightly wrong because he had forgotten to account for leap year. Uh, and um, so that was that was how that started. And then Lady Astronaut began um, when I was asked to write something for an anthology called Ripoff, in which we had to begin our story with a famous first line. So I began with the first line of Wizard of Oz, which is why uh, I have the International Aerospace Coalition launching rockets from Kansas, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I got locked into that. Um, Did that ever feel like, um, like I don't know, 
uh, a, a giant mistake. Yes, because it doesn't make any sense at all to launch rockets from Kansas. Um, you you want to be as close to the or- to the equator as you can be. Uh, it's nice to have a big body of water. Uh, in case something goes wrong, um, and and I've got none of that in Kansas. Um, so, so what happened with the, the the novel is that it's set forty years before the the novella with the same characters, same same main character, um, and so there was a lot of stuff that I had to justify in the world that I was locked into. Right. And, well, and, and there's also stuff that I just – I looked at and I'm like, oh, boy, that timeline was wrong. So Elma and Lady Astronaut of Mars just misremembered the dates on that because it <laughs> <laughs> doesn't make any sense. locked into some character things, right? You've got, you've got the relationship, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, we know what happens in 40 years. Yep. And so um, uh, we know that they're going to be in a loving relationship for another 40 years and things like this. Like there are certain things um, – did that may was this the sort of restrictions breed creativity sort of thing, or was this a man? I wish that I could just toss this continuity. Um, there were times. There were times when I uh, mostly uh, timeline issues with with continuity. Um, the, the timeline does not actually make sense, uh, but we just, as I say, hand wave past that. Uh, the character stuff. Um, there were there were things about it. Uh, I was committed to having a loving relationship. That's I, I like it's one of my favorite parts about the book. Thank you. Um, I I feel like it's not depicted often enough, um, and so I one of the things that I knew going into it was that their commitment to each other was never going to be a conflict point, um, but that all of the stuff that was going on around them would cause stress. You know, would put strain on the relationship, but not. Not in the OMG, are they going to break up? I never wanted that to be a plot point. So before we get too far into this, I feel like we we may have missed a link in this chain earlier. Where was the point where you decided, okay, I've written these two shorts. Now I'm going to go back and write a novel. Well, like, how did, was that decision made? Um, I don't actually remember completely. <laughs> Um, I, I suspect that it was something along the lines of, hey, that just won a Hugo Award. <laughs> Can I market that? Let's capitalize um, on this thing. You know, which, is, which is really crass. Uh, but, but it was, it, to a certain degree, it was looking at some of my, my favorite works, um, uh, like uh, Anne McCaffrey's uh, Dragon, uh, um, the, the, the Ship Who Sang, which was a short story that, that got expanded, and some other things. And Even Dragonflight won the Hugo before it was finished as a novel. Yeah. And, and so I was, I was interested in what that process was like. Um, and the other thing was that, you know, I have these characters, and they've got this really interesting backstory that I haven't explored. Like, you know, I talk about in the novella that that Elma was one of the first women, the first people on Mars. And how does that how does that come about in the 1950s? How do you get to a point where you know you have women in space? Um, since it, it took a long time in the real world for that to happen. So how do how do I make it happen faster? Um, so there was a, a lot of it that there were just pieces of it that I was interested in, but I don't, I don't actually remember what it was that made me go, this is a good idea. Um, um, so let's get 
the astronaut's perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, because I've been looking at Chell. I'm like, yeah. so, uh, so, uh, yes, t- so, yes. Well, so I'm, I'm coming at this from a completely blank slate. So not having read um, the sequel the, that was first written, uh, I get to kind of follow this uh, chronologically from when Elma first becomes an astronaut. So, uh, and I have to say that uh, that the relationship between Elma and Nathaniel is one that um, that is clearly a very loving relationship. And frankly, Nathaniel sets a very high bar for uh, <laughs> husbands everywhere. Um, but it's clearly that that is the kind of the emotional core from from which uh, Elma draws her strength. And I think that that really resonates for those of us that undertake these, you know, sometimes, well, not sometimes, these very risky missions, um, that we, I think, largely recognize that we could not do this. We could not um, go through selection and go through training and do all of that travel uh, and do the mission as a single entity. It requires uh, support at home from the family, the, you know, your spouse has to be on board with this. Your, your kids have to be on board and understand uh, what, what all this entails. And, um, and so for me personally, and I see that in Elma also, is that, uh, that it is an advent, it's an adventure for the, for, that, for the team, for the family. Um, and the other part of it is that you, know, you clearly are showing behind the scenes that it's not just the astronaut that is going up there and getting to do um, really cool astronaut cool, things. Yeah, <laughs> astronaut things. In fact, that is a very, very small part of well, that's the book, like, right? That's and that's real life. Book, right? <laughs> right, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, um, and so that is real also. You know, in a typical astronaut career of, I don't know if you can call 20 years typical, that's maybe six months, yeah. maybe a year in space. And so most of that time is spent on the ground with this larger team that makes that possible. And, and that is reflected in these, uh, you know, the calculators that are doing the, the, the work and mission control and the engineers and, and all that. And so that is, I thought, really well depicted and reflected in the book. Phew. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to build off this and ask you a question because mm. this is one of the most interesting things about this book to me. Um, when you first started talking about it, and I, I remember brainstorming with you, you know, what be, what is now two books was one book. Yeah. And all, a lot of the things you talked about were going to be all ended up in the second book, right? The quote unquote exciting parts. Yeah. Right? Of the actual flying, um, you know, the rocket ship and things. Right. Um, yet this book is very compelling. Um, you made an extremely compelling book out of quote unquote the boring parts. And it's not boring at all. In fact, it feels breakneck to me. Uh, throughout the entire story. So how did you structure this, knowing that what everyone expected to be the book wasn't going to come until the second book? And how did you keep it paced and exciting? So um, so this was, when, when, when we were talking about it, it was, uh, my plan was that I was going to structure it like three novellas. Uh, that novella one was um, dealing with the asteroid strike, Novella two was the push to the moon and novella three was the push to Mars. And as I got into it uh, and started, uh, was working on it, there were sections that, because I knew I was going to be doing them in novella three with the Mars, that I was needing to skip in, 
in novella two, the, the, the push to the moon, because they felt um, it, it, it felt uh, it was going to be repetitive. But it also meant skipping things that were really emotionally important. And so I talked to my editor and said, I feel like I have made a structural mistake and that this is actually two different books. So as soon as we did that and moved, uh, moved Mars to being its own book, um, that freed me up to deal with a lot of, of the, the, the unsexy stuff, but the, the things about that, that I had been reading about in uh, all of these different autobiographies by astronauts talking about the selection process and getting the call and, uh, and you know, the first time that you do, you know, you, the first training flights that you do and all of these different things that are these emotional points. So what I was what I was trying to work with, um, was with, with this was, was not so much the, the question of, you know, it's, it's never a question of, is she going to go to the moon? Is she going to go into space? That's never, you know, right. But, uh, but how and when, and what is she going to have to push against? So what I wound up doing was, um, was trying to focus more on her emotional reaction to stuff and also the, uh, the societal pressures rather than the technical pressures. Uh, the technical pressures, I felt like, well, this is, this is our job. This is what we're doing. This is, this is the thing we do. Um, and then the societal pressures were the kind of more of my, my major plot points because it, okay. it's set in the 1950s, yeah. which is in the middle of the civil rights era. So one of those kind of emotional arcs that you do in this book is her overcoming this kind of very intense anxiety disorder that she has. Yeah. And I am wondering how much of that was presaged by the previous books, or is that just you felt like it was important for her character and you, you created it for this one? It was something that I created for this. Uh, by the t- 40 years later, she's got that pretty much under control, mm-hmm. in, in part because the specific anxiety that she has is a, a social anxiety disorder. Um, you, you, you know, you have things, you know, you strap her onto a rocket, she's fine. Uh, you ask her to speak to a large room, she's like, I'm not okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that, that is true for a lot of people. Uh, and, and also, oddly... Uh, people with things like social anxiety disorder tend to be really good in a crisis situation because they're used to managing low-level or or high-level anxiety all the time. So they're actually quite level-headed when things are going wrong. Um, And I added that because I had a character who was hyper-competent. That was this canon thing. You know, she's a pilot. She's... um, She's this computer, uh, you know, mathematician, um, and and I needed I needed to give her a, a breaking point, a weakness, and uh, that one was a very obvious one uh, for for a number of reasons. One of which is that it also allowed me to highlight some of again those societal pressures because she's she's bucking against what it is that she's supposed to be doing the 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 hole that people keep trying to fit her in. So that, that was one of the, the reasons I added that to her character. Let's, have, oh, go ahead. And go I ahead. have to say that uh, that societal part was something that, uh, that it was hard to read. The reactions to, you know, the introduction of the female astronauts and 
um, photos of them powdering their nose in the cockpit or, you know, as they're doing the dunker test, putting them in bikinis. And, and so from today's perspective, I have a really hard time with that. But when I think back to the 50s and, you know, you've just introduced a new astronaut class and you ask this group about cooking in space and this cook about, you know, what they're going to accomplish during a mission. I mean, of course, that, that is very foreign to the experience I hope is very foreign to our experience now, but but it really brings you into the era that we're talking about. Yeah, it was that that was based on uh, two things, which are both unfortunately real world. Uh, one is the way the uh, the wasps were treated in World War II, um, and and a lot of the the early women airline pilots uh, just even becoming airline pilots. Um, but there was one of the things that they would have to do. Um, and I read about, uh, I, think th- I think this is in uh, Jerry Cobb's book, uh, but in one of the, the books uh, about uh, early women pilots, um, they would talk about how they would, ha- they would fly, and they would own their own company, or they would be, you know, the, ta- the, the captain, and they would, they would get in the craft, they would fly it to wherever they were going, and then they would have to slide their trousers off and slide a skirt on before they got out, because the the people wanted to see them in skirts and heels and that they would they would have to powder their nose in the craft and put on the lipstick before they got out because that's what the client expected to see um and and some of the the uh the first women astronauts talked about the different questions that they got and uh from from the press and and you can read them and you're like yep <laughs> i mean i've i've pushed it a little but not very far. Mm-hmm. Um. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Stop for the book of the week. You're going to tell us about writing rockets? Yes. So this is one of the books that I leaned on very heavily when I was writing this. Uh, there were a number of them, which we've, we've talked on other podcasts, but uh, writing, the rockets, uh, writing Rockets by uh, Mike Mullane, um, who was a shuttle-era astronaut. It's a fantastic autobiography, and it, one of the things that's great about it is that he came into the program when – a lot of the Mercury and Apollo people are still there. And so he's got this perspective where he's looking at the way the program is changing. And, and also um, he's, he's a really compelling storyteller and very good with sensory details. And I, I pulled a lot of stuff from, from yeah, I, that. I really enjoyed that book as well. It's yeah. a great shuttle era book. Uh, let me ask you, Chell, did you get um, freezing water squirted in your ear? I did not get freezing water squirted in my ear. Um, I spent uh, three days and two nights in a freezing Russian forest. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that did not get surprised with a... Uh, yeah. That was... I so wanted... That was one of the things the uh, the things that I wanted to fit into the book and just there wasn't a s- structural spot for it was the, the wilderness survival stuff. <laughs> oh, I wanted that in there. So I'm going to do... It. What, what do you mean by that? Like, you actually... They make you do wilderness survival? Absolutely. So they did it back in the Apollo days. In yeah. fact, there's a great photo of, um, actually, I think it's the Mercury 7 
out in a desert. They've uh, cut up a parachute and tied it on their heads and their various states of undress um, because they are out doing essentially desert uh, survival. And they weren't and, sure where they were going to come down. Right. Mm, okay. Hmm. And so as a part of our training, um, we do water survival and winter survival uh, to prepare us for the possibility of one landing in water. The, the Soyuz spacecraft is designed to land on land. And so water landing uh, requires some additional procedures and, and training. And then winter survival, because I did, in fact, uh, after, at the end of my mission, land in the middle of the night in a blizzard. And uh, so had the team not been able to track us, then uh, we would have to have been able to fend for ourselves for a little while. Now, technology has improved since the days that we really kind of started this training. And so we have GPS, we have satellite phone. And so the fact that we would, the team wouldn't be able to find us is fairly remote at this point. Um, but the winter survival training is a, is a little bit of a, uh, maybe a little bit of a haze and, and uh, just to, can, it's that type two fun that mm-hmm. I think in a previous <laughs> podcast that uh, Tom Marshburn was talking about. Type one fun being the, the fun that you're having in the moment and the type two fun, the experience that you think back at it and like, it's fun that that is done, that that is yeah. over. So. Well, and it's also my, my father-in-law was uh, Air Force, uh, Vietnam era fighter pilot, and, and they did survival training with them as well uh, as a, as a um, team building Sure. Um, and and ways to test how you react under pressure situations without the the safety net of well I'm I'm in a simulation. It's like no, you're actually no, <laughs> you you're could not. actually yeah. die out here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the climax because we're running. We, we only have a few minutes left. Um, this book pushes toward liftoff. Yeah, quite effectively. I wanted to ask, Jill, this is your chance. What did she get right? What did she get wrong? Well, let me tell you, so it's clear that you've done your research because the terminology that you use, even the tempo of the use of that terminology is really good. The acronyms, people railing against acronyms, um, that's all, <laughs> that is all very common to experience. So in the biographies that you've read and the pieces that you've borrowed, that feels very familiar and sounds very familiar. Um, but you don't dwell on that. That is background, I, and I, th- I really appreciate that. What you, you do, I thought you did a great job of, was really focusing on the emotional reaction to various events. Talking of the description of taking off in a T-38 and the ground falling away um, below. And the same you know, with, her, with her other flights, the, that sensation of taking off. And then the launch. You know, it's not so much a description of necessarily what's happening. You certainly let the reader know what's going on. But it is that visceral reaction. It is the explanation of how she's feeling as she, um, she experiences these various milestones as, as they climb into orbit. And that is w- really what rang true to me, is the description of the person that's, uh, that's going through it, not so much um, the technical description of, okay, now that this is where the rocket is. And, and, uh, and so not just the launch and not just the taking off, Sitting in mission control, the the how you feel when you see a, a rocket explode, all those things rang very emotionally true to me. Oh, good. Yep. Um, so here are the hacks that I used to get that. <laughs> um, one is that I noticed in uh, a number of the autobiographies, um, when the astronaut began talking about their launch, their first launch, um, they switched to, to present tense. 
Uh, and Chris Hadfield's um, in his uh, Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth says um, that he is switching to present tense because it is that vivid, that it feels like something that he has just done because it is unlike, it doesn't fit, you know, it doesn't get blended into any other memories. It's interesting, that description of it, and I, I see it in your book as well, is that it that it is not a narrative of, like, this is my launch narrative. This is what happened when I took off. It is snapshots of memories and emotions that you had at a particular time. So I remember the whole launch sequence, the one where the engine started. and But there are various, very specific times when the launch shroud pulled away. And, and so we were able to see out the window for the first time. My first glimpse of the Earth, the arc of the Earth, and the blues and whites contrasted against the sky, um, you know, when the first time I opened the hatch to get ready to do a spacewalk, just very specific snapshots. Uh, and it, it, it does feel very present and it's, it's not, and you can string those things together as a story, but yeah, these are very brief glimpses in time that, that, uh, that you remember and re- just are able to relive. So let me tell one other hack that I used, uh, or two other hacks, uh, because these will be useful for readers. Uh, or for writers. Uh, one is that um, I basically grabbed the uh, Mercury, because NASA has these online, the, the transcripts of the Mercury launches uh, and the Apollo launches, and um, used them as the outline for the scene and wrote on top of it, pulling out some stuff to, I'm like, and we're going to skip past this very long thing. Um, uh, and then the other thing is that uh, which Chell is well aware of, I would write sections and be like, and then the captain turned and said, jargon. <laughs> <laughs> and he handled his jargon. <laughs> and then I sent them off to experts. Um, and so I would email Chell, and I had um, a rocket scientist, and um, for uh, Faded Sky, I also had the person who does the... Um, the, the algorithms to figure out where the, the landers should land. And I would send it off to them and say, can you just play Mad Libs with this? And uh, Katie <laughs> Coleman was also, who's a shuttle era astronaut. And, and so technically speaking, sections of this book were written by an astronaut. Or multiple astronauts. By multiple yeah. astronauts. The, the version of this that you sent to me was early enough that it still had a lot of that in there. And I remember in particular... I'm fairly certain it's the sequence early on where she is flying the plane into Kansas. And it just broke, and there was about a half page, all in brackets, that said, okay, I haven't written this scene yet, but here's a bunch of jargon I've already collected. And then you just had some sentences that could be used to fit in as she talks to the, to the tower to make the landing, which is not something I've ever done. I thought that was a really cool trick, too. Yeah, I found a... Um with that one, I'm not sure if that's the one. There was one of them where I found a training video of how to. Um, it's a, a an Air Force training video from like the 70s or 80s of how to how to start a T-38, and so there's an instructor talking through it, and it's real time and. So I'm just like, wait, going to pause that. What did they just say? Because <laughs> there's, you know, because it, it's exactly the thing that I have where I have a trainer and I have a, the pilot in the back and these are the, the, the back and forth between them. I'm like, okay, noting that. Um, my father-in-law had a number of things that were wrong with the, the, uh, 
which I think were all fixed by the time you guys read it, uh, with with some of the the piloting stuff because he had flown all of the planes that I talked about. He was a test pilot too. So, um, so, so there is one piece though. Yes, so chapter thirty four. Ooh, I'm excited. Yes, um, where you talk about so it looks like a grab from shuttle era description of a Tau, so transatlantic abort, talking about the OMS engines, the ohms. Mm-hmm. And so that is very, very shuttle-specific. So, so for anyone that knows kind of shuttle lingo, they will see this is a this is shuttle lingo grab. And so there may be pieces of that that are applicable to kind of the Mercury-Gemini-Apollo-era vehicle. But, but this is yeah. probably some of that terminology. You'd have to really make sure that that fits. Does, because they didn't have an ohms. The shuttle had an ohms engine. But right. the... The Apollo era did not. No, of course they didn't. And the and we planned aborts for the shuttle so that they would actually could land. So there's a transatlantic abort. There is a return to launch site abort. Um, right. If you're aborting off of a capsule, you're basically just going into the drink somewhere random uh, along the flight the flight path. Okay. Yeah. And no. So that we is... would want to reconcile that with this era of space flight. Yeah, thank you. I will totally go. Reader, readers, you will not see that in there because I'm going to go fix that. <laughs> Get but more detail on it. The will original version available somewhere. Yeah, we're we're putting the original version up on the uh, of anything that I chapter chapter 34 up on uh, on the Patreon so you can see after I <laughs> see the transatlantic abort. No, that's of course. Yeah, right. And and I think I probably grabbed that because I couldn't find any stuff about aborting from. Uh, Apollo and Mercury because sure. because of exactly that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. Anything else <laughs> that I got wrong? Please tell me things. Oh boy. I so I just want to say I really enjoyed the al- this alternate history because there were brief it's glimpses. Not a thing I got wrong. <laughs> no, it's not. No, I, I'm. That, I yes, don't have did. a whole Dewey lot. Lost to, that election. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Dewey's in charge, and uh, um, and we hear. We see Aldrin and Armstrong and Collins' name in the next, the new class of 35 astronauts. And so there are pieces of, of our history that have been borrowed into this. And yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I love that it started with a, a cabin in an earthquake. And then her description of the launch was, was shaking like a cabin in an earthquake. Yeah. So, Yay. Cool. Circular stuff. Yeah. It, was, it is a really good book. Thanks. <laughs> you guys all have obviously read it because we told you you had to. But if for some reason you haven't, you need to read this book so that you can read the sequel. Right. And the sequel is all space all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I mean, they have to the get time. to space yes. uh, most of the time. Um, yes, and, and the sequel has, uh, has a section that I changed because I was talking to Chell at a convention and he talked about uh, watching in, in the Martian movie someone change direction mm-hmm. In in midair, and I remember that he was continuing to talk, and I'm like, I am rewriting a scene in my head while this man is speaking to me. <laughs> we are out of time, though. Uh, we've already gone about 30 minutes. So, uh, Dan, you've got a writing prompt for us. Yes. Okay, so we, what we want you to do is recreate for yourself a little of what Mary did with this. Take something you've already written. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what it is. Something you've already finished. And then write a prequel of that that takes place 40 years earlier. All right. We want to thank Chell for being on with us. Oh, thank you for having me. And this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production.
jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.